Church, Charlotte. All right, John chapter number eight. We're going to read at verse number one. I have a little bit of an explanatory title, the kind of title that hopefully piques your interest and you'll understand it better by and by. My title is Owners Versus Renters. Owners Versus Renters. John chapter number eight, verse number one. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came with him. Somebody say, all the people. There was a lot of people there. Uh, All the people, um, that's a lot. (laughs) And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst, they said. Now notice, they are making a spectacle of this woman. They're not concerned about whether or not it's embarrassing to her. It is a spectacle. They place her in the midst and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, notice the order. He's already begun to write a mysterious communication in the ground. And as they continue pressing him, he stands up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Somebody say, in Jesus' name. So this uh, passage of Scripture is one of the most uh, remembered and celebrated stories told to us in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Those Gospels are a testimony of the Lord's life, a testimony of what he has done in the earth to make a difference for whosoever will, that is, whosoever will repent of their sins and turn their heart, their mind, the path of their journey toward the kingdom of God. Because this moment is such um, uh, a thematic moment. It is as though you wanted to find a theme in the ministry of Jesus's life. If you want to find a handful of stories which, as good as anything else, highlight the uniqueness of the heart of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you would be hard-pressed to find any story 
more celebrated, more exalted, more talked about, sung about, preached about than this story that we uh, are referring to together here in John chapter number eight of the woman caught in uh, adultery. I want to very quickly make sure that we are all clear about what is happening here because I realized in preparing for this uh, Sunday that I had a bit of an image in my mind that was not exactly in line with the memory that the Apostle John shared in this moment. I realized that I had been influenced by some of the um, drama and movie-like depictions that have been done of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, just to be clear, not all of the uh, movies about the life of Christ are good. Not all of them are bad. I would say the fairest thing we can say is all of them uh, make an attempt but none of them come close to the power of who Jesus is, what Jesus did. And yet drama is the art of trying to represent something that everybody has already missed and you are trying to show them something that either happened uh, or didn't happen, but we represent it. And so I'm not universally trying to say all of the dramas, plays, movies, shows about the life of Jesus Christ are all um, in some way without any value. I just want to confess that my perception had been influenced by some of what I had seen. And in my mind, I kind of had this, I call it showdown at OK Corral type contra, con, con, uh, confrontation, that's the word I'm looking for, of this moment. And it goes like this. Jesus is on one side of uh, OK Corral, and he has his posse with him, do you see? And then marching on to screen right, you see the Pharisees, and they show up, and they kind of have their posse with them. And in the no man's land between them, there's this poor woman who is uh, forced there against her will, thrown into the no man's land between them. And the scribes and Pharisees, they say, Moses said, so you have this showdown at OK Corral. You have a small group of Jesus followers in Jesus, and you have another group of judgmental Pharisees. And hopefully in your life, you've spent more time with Jesus and the Jesus followers than you have the Pharisees and the scribes. But if you haven't, dearly beloved, it may not be too late for you to be introduced to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the thing I want you to see in this moment right now is John does not tell the story that way. It's not about a showdown between two, um, you know, gangs. It, that's not what's happening here. Jesus is teaching a lot of people. In fact, John talks about, uh, he just says all the people. Uh, maybe he's referring to the people in that area, a village. You get the idea. But there's enough there that they are the, uh, they, they are very much already involved in the teaching of Jesus Christ. This is not gangland wards between two different groups. Jesus is surrounded by people. Now, how did this happen? How was teaching done in this time? There's a reason why the phrase set at his feet became a cliche. 
and you would talk of any teacher, any philosopher of that time, um, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Um, the school of Hillel would gather, and Hillel would teach, and they would gather around him. How did this happen? It happened because they would find a natural promontory, uh, some type of natural shape of the land, and a teacher would sit in an elevated or stand in an elevated position, and what would they do then? They would have all the people gather around, hopefully in a fairly comfortable area, maybe arranging rocks, maybe uh, settling uh, the robes or uh, some type of the equivalent in some way where they could sit around. If we were gathered like that, we probably have 150, 160 people here right in this room right now, adults, um, and uh, that's would be that would be for a rainy, uh, a rainy 11 a.m. service going into the holidays. That would be probably a, a solid adults only count over here for a, one of our services. And um, look how spread out we are. We have a lot of room. We have padded pews. You have your uh, coat beside you. <laughs> you have your purse if you carry a purse beside you. Uh, briefcase, backpack, whatever it is. I have my my shoulder pack, my messenger bag that I carry with all my stuff. I put it beside me. We're all spread out, so we have a sense of distance here. But if there was not this furniture and you didn't have an amplifier to project my voice, you know what you would do? You would gather in. And we could almost put all of you maybe just a little bit larger than the uh, altar area if you were sitting on the ground, do you see? So how many people was probably around Jesus? It was probably several hundred people to represent this moment where they are gathered around and into this teaching moment where Jesus is teaching people sitting around. Here comes an a gathering, um, an enclave of Pharisees and scribes, and they are forcing a woman to come with them. She doesn't want to be there. No one likes to be humiliated. So if any of us are in the business of humiliating anyone, we need to get out of that business. Can I have a big first church amen? I know there are pastoral styles. There are church cultures where it's not uncommon for someone to be um, uh, humiliated publicly. I've talked with a number of you in first steps and heard some horror stories about how um, something went wrong uh, in your young life and you had to, um, some of you have told me about being uh, put in front of the whole church and having to publicly confess of a, a teenage-like um, immoral uh, error of your ways. I've heard that about some of you and how you were humiliated in front of the whole church and you had to confess what you had done and then you had to apologize in front of everybody about what you had done. I know there's church cultures that do that. I don't want to be a part of them. Um, that's fine for them. They, they have a master. They can answer for themselves. But I get to vote with my feet. Do you see what I'm saying? Isn't that awesome? I get to go and try to find a different feeling service. So the Pharisees come, and they drag this poor woman caught in the act, to which every woman in the history of the world asks, where is the man? There's never been a woman in the history of the world who did not wonder, where is the stinking man? 
um, because they caught him in the act, you know what I mean? Uh, but they, they kept her, they let him slip out the side door. Maybe, just maybe, he was in the crowd wanting her to be stoned. That's how judgmentalism works. And so they bring her, she is humiliated, they put her in front of Jesus. There is now not just a showdown at OK Corral with Jesus and his posse and the Pharisees and their posse and a poor woman between them in the middle ground. There is a host of people watching a confrontation of the judgmental with this man preaching a gospel of grace. And so uh, Jesus is now uh, set in a trap, do you see? And this is the moment that John shares with us, the trap of these Pharisees foisted upon Jesus in the hope that the moment is bigger than he is. But here's the good news about Jesus. The moment is never bigger than he is. The trial is never bigger than God. The trouble is never bigger than God. The disease, oh, I might preach here a little bit today. The disease is never bigger than God. He's bigger than all my troubles. Do I have any church folks here today? He is bigger than all my troubles. He is bigger than all my fears. The moment's not bigger than Jesus, and uh, he sees what is going on, and then interestingly, he answers them, but in the only way where the condemnation of them is private. I want you to watch what's happening here, because we're going somewhere together. He writes in the ground where the people immediately there in front of him, of him, the judges, can see what he's writing, but no one else can see what he is writing. And the Bible gives us this image that they begin to slip away, thinking maybe, just maybe, they weren't as um, lily perfect as they thought they were. And maybe, just maybe, if someone who actually knew what was going on in their life was to speak publicly like they're willing to do. They may not stand in good standing much any longer. And having begun a private message, why do you send a note? Because the message is private. My God, someone ought to preach that. That's why you send a note, because it's a private message. It's like my wife sent me a note. She said, I love you. Do you love me? Yes or no? And I circled the or and sent it back to her. got to speak the truth in love, sister. got to speak the truth in love. Just having fun. My wife's awesome. I love her. If I'm saved, it's going to be because of her. Anyway, moving along. Um, So uh, here you see uh, this trap. Somebody say trap. It's a trap. 100%. We can do better than that. Somebody say trap. Religious people can set traps too. It's not just Lucifer who sets traps. Um, And so here you have this moment of confrontation. Jesus writes in the ground a private note that can be read by those who stand and look at the ground, but it's private to everyone else. And evidently, he told the disciples not to share it because even when they told about it and even when they were close, they did not record what Jesus wrote on the ground. Uh, Okay, now just let's keep that idea kind of spinning on the turntable of the DJ here that is 
busting this move for you today. We're going to leave that turntable running over here as if Pastor Don was running a Jamaican party that everybody needed Jesus at. And uh, some come from far. Some come from far. We've got this turntable turning over here, all right? Now, continuing along, dearly beloved, I want to talk to you about the difference in an owner and a renter. And hopefully when I'm done today, you will at least give me this kind of a compliment. I did not see that coming. That was different than I saw because the hardest thing in the history of the world for a pastor is to preach something new. So here we go. The difference in an owner versus a renter. Let me first start by saying um, there's no, uh, this isn't a judgment of owners are good and renters are bad. That's, that's not what it is. Uh, Almost everybody who is now an owner has at some time been a renter, and many of you who have been renters are now owners. So the judgment is not about uh, good, bad, you know, owner be good, renter be bad. It's more complicated than that. Almost everybody is a renter. It's just some people rent the money and some people rent the house, but we're all renters. It's just rent is easily understood when you rent the house because we call that, are you ready for this deep thought. We call that rent. But when you rent the money, we don't call it rent. We call it a mortgage. But you're doing the same thing. You're either renting the money or you're renting the house. Hopefully, you will understand this and you will not have a sense of embarrassment if you rent and do not own. Sometimes it's more expensive to rent the money uh, and it's smart to rent the house. And other times, it's smart to rent the house or rent the... uh, You understand what I'm saying. Vice versa. Um, the point is not uh, the owner is good, the renter is bad. The point is, is more subtle than that, and I want you all to understand it, because this is what it comes down to. The owner of anything is attached long-term to the thing, and the renter has no long-term attachment whatsoever. I want to say that again because that's important. Now, there are seasons of our life where it makes sense to be a renter. If you're in that season, you should not have any what you should not have any problem whatsoever being a renter and you should not feel like a second class financial person because you're renting. Some of the richest people in the world rent or lease. Why? Because they can write it off their taxes. That's a different problem. So um, I want you however to see that in the transition of your life, you may not have a long-term attachment to uh, a piece of real estate or a financial asset or the like. Uh, In other seasons of your life, you may. However, what you all have to see is that when you do not have a financial attachment to uh, a long-term financial attachment to something, you do not have a long-term financial interest in that thing, and you don't care about it. That's why no one in the history of the world has ever washed a rental car. Uh, That's not true. Uh, People actually do wash rental cars. I've washed rental cars if I had meetings or something. But it's a fun point to make because you're not incentivized to have a commitment to something that you do not have a long-term relationship with, do you see? And so a renter will not worry about the roof needs repaired if they are leaving next month. Why? 
why. They have no long-term commitment to it. It's not that they're bad people. I mean, they may be bad people, but that's a different problem. Uh, They just don't have this long-term interest. And so it is that the owner is connected long-term to the financial asset, the piece of real estate, the renter isn't. That creates a different set of incentives on how you act, interact, how you relate to the thing in question. When you own the house, you show up and you worry about whether or not it needs painting because if you don't paint it, you know it won't be long and it won't be worth near as much. You worry about the roof because you know if water enters into it, water can destroy it in one rainy season. It doesn't matter how much you paid for it. One rainy season, that water will destroy the whole thing. It's incredibly destructive. You worry about it. Why? Here's the important point I want you to get. You have an interest, watch, in the future value of the thing. I want you to say that with me. Future value of the thing. You, as an owner, are connected to the future value of a thing. Why is, why are, I should say, the Pharisees so comfortable humiliating this woman? Because they don't care about her. They don't care about her. I don't mean to be ugly. I don't mean to be in some way dismissive, but they are willing to humiliate her, to shame her publicly, to embarrass her publicly because they have no interest in her future value. Do you see? Uh, And so they're perfectly willing to bring her in front of the crowd, mock, humiliate, judge, and embarrass her, and then move on with their lives as though nothing happened, because to them, nothing happened. They have a cynical view towards her. Their view is this, let's just use her for what she can do for us now. And here's the interesting thing in the story of justice is they are doing the same thing to her that the man who fled having committed adultery to her had done. In principle, they have committed the same sin. They use her for what she can be to them and have no interest in anything pertaining to her and nothing to do with any of her future value. Thus, use her for what you want her for and then cast her to the side. Destroy her future. Doesn't matter. It's not just the sinner taking advantage of her. The Pharisee is doing it too and she's trapped on her hands and knees thrown to the ground before Jesus and the real question is are you going to take advantage of me too I could say it differently but it wouldn't be appropriate you are you going to take advantage of me too are you just another it doesn't really matter the ways of this world they can say they're not religious they can say they're religious but the truth is nobody has an interest in my future value they 
all just want to take a rental on something without any commitment to it whatsoever. And here is Jesus placed on the horns of a justice dilemma. And here's the interesting thing. The Pharisee is quoting God's man, Moses, to justify what they have already decided to do. It is a very unique situation. You could say, yes, Moses had commanded it, but remember, when Moses commanded it, it was 1,500 years of social, civil, and justice development within the habits, culture, and civilization of humanity earlier, and the practice had long since fallen from favor. In fact, the Roman Empire reserved to itself the right of capital punishment. And whenever it happened, even in Jewish life, it was mob behavior. The Romans did not allow it. And the Romans would enforce against it. That's why, don't have time to preach this, but some of you guys actually enjoy Bible history, so let me give you some for your enjoyment. That's why when the Apostle Paul was threatened, they want to kill him. Why did the Romans protect him? Because they were believers? No. No, but because they were in charge and they reserved the right of capital punishment for themselves. And here, these Pharisees come. The Pharisees don't stone many people because they're always at risk of being in trouble with the Romans if they do. It happens because of culture. It still happens in that part of the world. It's human culture. But what happens when the authorities show up? They try to figure out who did it. You can go to prison for doing it in those nations where it's still a culture. Do you see the unique situation? The Pharisees don't really want to stone her. What they want to do is destroy Jesus. They have laid a snare. Jesus, are you just another one who sees humanity as a rental? Do you have any interest in the long-term value of people? Or are you willing to grind them into the ground of convenience and pretend justice? Why do I say pretend justice because they're doing the same thing the man sinning with her did. It's a pretend justice. It's not a real justice. It's a pretend justice. And the point of the law was not justice. The point of the law was to teach us that we needed a redeemer. Don't have time to preach that, but you've all heard me preach it. And so here you have Jesus. Are you just another one who has no long-term interest in people? And so this is the moment this woman has been cast into. Jesus is going to do something that I hope you all get. I hope you understand this. It is so deep within my spirit to convey this in a faithful way that you can carry with you. Jesus begins to write in the ground in the form of a private message to the condemners who are close enough to look over the shoulders of the woman they have thrown on the ground before Jesus. And notice, to keep her from running away, they would have arrayed themselves around her and they would have positioned themselves against Jesus around her and they would have thrown her on the ground. She doesn't want to be there. If she could slip away, she would. If she could flee, she would. No one wants to be humiliated. 
but here she is. There's no escape. Trapped by time, trapped by fate, trapped by the very civil organs of her life and government and society. Here she is. I am thrown before you, worthless. Jesus hears their accusation and begins to write in the ground. We, to this day, don't know what he write, but we know it was some kind of a message to those who would destroy someone else. And the message, however, it was spoken whenever it said, in one way or another, said this, you guys aren't near as righteous as you think you are. In fact, you are good at pretending to a righteousness that you don't live. And I'm going to write a little note right here, a little asterisk beside the story of your life. And I am going to remind you that you are in just as much need of mercy as someone caught in the act of adultery. And the Bible says, as they observe what he is writing, from the eldest to the youngest, they begin to step back. Maybe I am not as ready to judge others as I thought I was. Here's the thing. Uh, They are willing to humiliate and condemn this woman because they have no interest in her future value. What the Lord wants to do is treat her like a daughter and protect her and cover for her and as a brother or a a sibling would do, cover her indiscretion and encourage her toward better choices, a better life. When you care about somebody, you don't like it when they embarrass themselves. Uh, All you parents, if you have teenagers, you've probably had the unique experience of uh, feeling like you were watching that beloved young person do something that was embarrassing. And it was like ants had crawled over every inch of your body. And you could hardly sit still as you wanted to help them not embarrass themselves. All of you have been around people who, uh, maybe not all of you, but a lot of you have been around people who were in the very act of embarrassing themselves and humiliating themselves. And if you cared about them at all. You wanted to cover for them. You wanted in some way to cover a transgression. This is the very heart of mercy. You know why you wanted to? Stay with me. This is why you wanted to, because you were invested in the future value of that person. You didn't want them to humiliate themselves. You wanted to cover for them. But if you don't care, who cares? You have no investment in their future value. So let me say a couple things here real quick. The sign of toxic church culture is uh, the uncontrolled mouth of the gossiper. Because what the gossiper does is the gossiper destroys your reputation in order to enjoy entertainment, which says this. They enjoy you. They, in, they, they, value, they, they value you less than a good laugh. That's the truth of a gossip culture. They care less about you than a good laugh. They would rather have a good laugh than care about your future value. This is toxic religion. This is toxic church culture. And when they get together, they can talk all they want to about how much they love Jesus. But listen to who they sacrifice on the altar of their own entertainment. Oh, it's quiet now. 
I'm just getting mad, so y'all gonna suffer for a while. No, I'm teasing, I'm not mad at all. I'm just cutting up. That is the role of the gossiper. They would rather have a good laugh than care about the future value of your reputation. They don't even care half the time if it's true. If it's a good story, that's good enough for them. Uh, let me just say something deadpan, and I'll say it to the camera, uh, and then I'll say it to all you. Well, actually, I'll just say it once, because I, that's, I'm not going to say it twice. Uh, here we go. Y'all ready for this? All you gossipers deserve each other. You, you deserve each other. God bless you. Go off. Be as spiritual as you think you are. You deserve each other. Was that straight enough? How many of you have lived under the cruel cut of someone who would trade your reputation for a quick laugh? There is nothing more toxic in the story of faith than people like these Pharisees who will burn the future value of somebody so they can do something in the short term, the here and now. This church is full of imperfect people. As a result, it's nobody's business what God brought anybody else from. I don't want to hear anybody talking about somebody else's past sins or acting like you're better. None of us are better. The ground is level at Calvary. All of us need mercy. And can I have a great big uh, amen from the church? Now would you praise God for his mercy in your life? We bless you, Lord Jesus. We exalt you, Lord Jesus. We magnify you, Lord Jesus. We glorify your name. So here's Jesus, and he is the opposite of the Pharisee. What is it? The difference is not just deity versus humanity. That is true, but that's not the teaching moment. He is good. They are flawed. But that's not the teaching moment. The teaching moment is whether this Savior of the world is willing to burn this woman's future value to teach a lesson to the Pharisees that are gathered around. And you know what he decides to do? He says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here, Lord. And what does he say? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Think of it as a second chance. Think of it as a repentance service. Think of it as a fresh start. Go and sin no more. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say a couple things. God is committed to your future value, not just your past sins. He's committed not just to who you've been. He's committed to who you can be. So no matter where you are in your life, no matter what embarrassment stopped you from coming to church, there was a day you came to church, but whatever whatever past embarrassment stopped you, I want you to know God is invested in your future value. He wants to gather you to a household of faith. He wants to integrate you with other brothers and sisters. Uh, he is not a renter when it comes to you. He is committed to you. Hallelujah.
And just like a parent wants to protect a child, to educate a child, and to help the child never humiliate him or herself again, so it is God is invested in our life, and he wants to make our lives better. He is not overly impressed with your past. This is what he's interested in. I'm not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. You have a unique opportunity for all things to be new. I'm thankful for mercy today. I'm thankful for, oh God, I want to praise you today for the great work of mercy in our lives. So let me, let me try to conclude with this. I have a bunch of notes, but my iPad went dead, and it's a sign from the Lord that they weren't important. So uh, we're just going to uh, c- close this up here with this. Jesus is so committed to you and to who you can be in him that even when we are the person who is acting in folly, even when we're the fool, if you'll allow me to say it that way, the Lord still protects our future value. That's why you see Jesus with a stick in his hand, writing a private message. You will not find anywhere where Jesus calls a Pharisee by name and makes it personal and attacks their personal character or personal reputation. He always speaks broadly about the spirit of their ways. He does not name names. He does not attack them. He does not harm their future value. The Pharisees are always willing to destroy your reputation. They're willing to throw you before the crowd. They're willing to destroy your future value because that is what is in their heart. They are not creatures of grace. They are creatures of judgment, but they are blind to the fact that the words they speak to others are being spiritually echoed back to them, which is why Jesus said, forgiveness and mercy are linked. And the same measure that you you hand out mercy, it's going to be handed out back to you. The Pharisee is living a deception They cannot see that the very law they quote to others is being quoted to them. That's what the Apostle Paul preaches, uh, at least in two different epistles. Uh, You can't just select the part of the law you want to apply. You can't just say, oh, you failed here in this favorite scriptural interpretation. When you claim one of it, you claim it all. Man, I wish I could preach better. I would really be straightening you guys out and hitting myself by accident. Normally, I straighten myself out and I hit y'all by accident, but I just feel like hitting y'all and getting me some extra by accident here today. No, I love preaching to you. You're awesome people. So here is my point. God is so committed to your future value. It's almost as though he thinks of you like a parent. No, baby, you are going to do your homework. Because if you blow your future, I'm not going to be happy even if mine turned out good. My joy is wrapped up in you. I don't want you hanging out with that crowd because they are following a certain path that it may not be predictable to you, but honey, I've been to the rodeo and I've seen that if you ride bulls, you're going to get thrown. It ain't rocket science. I don't want you to get thrown, trampled, and gored. So no more bull riding, baby, because here's the thing. It doesn't matter if my life turns out good if your life doesn't. Oh, my Lord, I wish I could preach a little bit here today. It doesn't matter if I'm living in mercy if you're living in judgment. It doesn't matter if I'm, in, if I'm blessed if you're starving. 
I am so connected to your future value that I refuse to humiliate you. I refuse to believe what hell is saying about you. I refuse to believe what your critics are saying about you. I refuse to believe what the Pharisees and they're willing to trade your future for a momentary laugh are saying about you. I reject it. I am wholly invested in your future. And it won't matter if I do good if you suffer. And so I'm committed to you. God is so committed to people. He never once calls out a Pharisee by name. He never names a single member of the Sanhedrin council. They're going to try to kill him. They are lying about him. He never mentions a name. He always talks about the spirit of their deception. Amen. Amen. And he cares so much about it that he writes in the ground where only they can see a private message that goes like this. Baby, you ain't near as good as you think you are. And they say, oh, I didn't know anyone knew about that. I might have to take a step back because the law I was ready to apply to others has another cutting edge on it. It doesn't just cut one way. It cuts both ways. Nobody look, y'all quit looking at me. Y'all quit looking at me. What you looking at me for? Stop it. Judgment. Judgment. Everybody hides from judgment. I'm glad you've served God 50 years. You hide from judgment too. I'm glad you spoke in tongues 17 hours. You hide from judgment too. There are none who are good. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. And when judgment starts riding, everybody backs away. We don't know their sins because God is so committed to the future value of a person that he refuses to destroy. Do you see? He writes where only they can see. And then he lets them get away. Why did he get them, let them get away with it? Why, why, why? The same reason he lets me get away with it. Amen. Same reason why he lets you get away with it. Because this is not just what he does. This is who he is. Do you perceive the heart of God? Do you perceive the heart of God? Do you perceive the heart of God? Here's the thing. Within a couple years, there will begin a great revival in Jerusalem. And there will be many people who begin to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them will become active members of a large and growing movement that will swell until the city is full of thousands of believers. Some of them will be Pharisees. We know that biblically. Some of them will be scribes. We know that from the great revival that happened. And here's the thing. It might be, it might be that if any of these men were ever to turn their heart toward God, Jesus did not want them to be known forever as the person who tried to throw the woman caught in adultery to the wolves and be destroyed. He doesn't just protect the people who are in sin. He protects the so-called religious people who think they're a force of judgment and do not realize judgment points at them too. He protects everybody. God is not a renter. God's committed in your your future value. And so let me end with this. 
wherever you are with God, all of you here, wherever you are in God, we as a church are committed to who you can become, not who you've been. Can I get a better agreement than that in this house? We are 100% invested in who you can become. One of the things we do, today's lesson one of first steps that I teach after this service, and uh, I make I go over our seven covenant commitments to new members of our church, and I won't go over them all right now, but all of them are basically, this is the spirit of them. We accept you as you are, where you are. We do not need to approve of you to accept you. Everybody accepts people they approve of, even and the heathen do, the Lord shows us in his teaching. What's hard is to accept people you don't approve of, because now it gets messy. You don't approve, but you're opening your heart to them. You protect yourself from some of the things in their life. You protect your kids from some of the things in their life, while at the same time, you're telling them, I believe God can do great things in you. Most people don't want that. They want a clean, simple, these people are good, these people are bad, but honey, it's way too complicated for that. The ship has sailed because all the people saying they're good, they are deceived. And all the people saying that they are bad, that's what the church is here for. It's much more complicated when you accept people and you do not approve. Yes, it's more difficult. Yes, we have to thread a fine line of opening ourselves to some things in their life and uh, closing off ourselves to some things in their life without ever taking away the future value of that person. And so we have people in our church still fighting addiction issues, still trying to put marriages together, still trying to find a way to overcome sins of the past, still trying to build new foundations because they're still thrown about by every circumstance and drama of their life. Do I approve of wherever they are? Do our leadership team approve everything? No. But let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to, if we can, if the Lord would grace us with his presence, we're going to try to do what he would do. And we're going to try to protect you from the wolves who would trade your reputation for a quick laugh. They just want to laugh. Their problem is not just deception, it's vanity. They are so vain, they think they are worthy of saying that stuff, and it is just a shame and a slap in the face of mercy. We want to protect you from the wolf who would consume you in the pursuit of a simple laugh. They won't even remember what they said about you. And when you confront them, they'll say they didn't say it. They won't even remember it. They have zero interest in your future value. That's why they'll throw your reputation into the gutter and a heart a heartbeat. That's not the presence of God in your life. God's committed to your future value. So whatever you're dealing with, I am here to speak a word of encouragement over you in your life. God's going to be with you. He's not leaving you in the mess you're living in. He is going to commit himself to taking your hand and one step at a time. Dear Jesus, you're going to come out of that circumstance you're in. You've been beaten down. You've been oppressed. Some of you are dealing with church hurt. Some dumb person who may even meant well and have done some dumb thing to you and you still live with the embarrassment. You still wake up with, uh, I call them stress dreams, where you're back in that situation. But here's what I want you to see. Here is what I want you to know. Oh, praise God. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. God is committed not just to this moment where you can feel something. He's committed to your future value. 
He wants to see you grow stronger. He wants to see you come into spiritual maturity. And if he can, he will protect your reputation. He will protect the mess you have made. And he will chide you. And he will reprove you. And he will rebuke you. And he will guide you. But he's always doing it where he is speaking to you. And change begins in your life. Woman, where are your accusers? Lord, I have none. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I, 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 I didn't even have time to get into this, but this is the moment when the Lord says, I am the light of the world. You see, the light of God stops the toxicity of the accuser. He reveals their reality to them, but it does not destroy. It convicts. I want you all to see this about the presence of God. It does not destroy, but it does convict. Can I have a better amen than that? And that same light that convicts the individual impressed with themselves, that same light goes to the person who thinks they will never have a chance again. They think they will never recover from this reality of shame and embarrassment. And it says, go and sin no more. The same light of God protects, convicts, empowers and encourages. And so what we want is to be the voice of the spiritual encourager one to another. What we want is to say to people, whatever happened yesterday is yesterday. What I need you to do right now is turn your heart toward the promises of God and take one step. Don't worry about 30 steps. Don't worry about 30 steps. There's going to be time for step number 30. Uh, I want you to take one step toward God. Stand with me all across this house. I want to make a spiritual appeal to you. If I have ever been a man of God in my life, I'm a man of God. When I say to you today, you need to figure out what your next spiritual step is, and you need to take one step. Go and sin no more. It's not going to happen in one moment. It's going to happen in moment after moment. It's not going to happen in one day. It's going to happen in day after day. But hope will re-enter into your heart and life and everything will be changed. I'm preaching to some people here today and I I want to do something uh, right now. Um, Every head bowed, every eye closed. Um, If if this message is directly impacting you, I want to pray for you today. Um, I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'll leave choice completely with you, but I want to pray for you. So as our heads are bowed, if this message applies to you, would you raise your hand across the house so I can pray a prayer of powerful spiritual inclusion and encouragement upon you. Thank thank, Thank all of you for being vulnerable right now in the presence of God. Church, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, we are praying for every one of our uh, brothers and sisters that are held in spiritual stasis by a past that limits what they think they can expect from heaven. Lord Jesus, we pray against the voice of the accuser. We pray against the work of Lucifer and the work of the Pharisee. It's the same work and it all has to do with accusation. 
One of them is the spirit of evil, that's Lucifer. The other is the spirit of deception. But they both have the same outcome, and that is they are destroying the future value of somebody who could become the child of God. So whether it is the malevolent work of evil on the in the case of Lucifer, or whether it is the malevolent judgment of deception in the heart and mind of a Pharisee or the equivalent Lord Jesus, I am praying today, I'm praying against the evil, and I'm praying against uh, the deception. And I'm praying that encouragement would be in some way gifted to the heart of everyone who is taking steps toward Calvary, everyone who is taking steps toward the kingdom and the promises of God. I am praying today, Lord Jesus, that encouragement would work in their life. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. I'm going to invite you to step out of the chair you're standing in. If you would, I'd like you to come down as close to the front as you can. I want us to pray uh, one with another, and I don't want you to resist this moment of the Spirit. I want you to humble yourself and make yourself vulnerable to this moment of the Spirit in your life. So would you do that uh, in whatever, step out of the aisle even, but find someone nearby. Uh, Those of you who will come who are comfortable, please come down to the front. We are an altar church, and we don't ever want to get where we don't have time for our altars. Our guests, our friends, we're honored that you've joined with us. We we end our services like this, praying uh, in the presence of the Lord, lingering in the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you need to slip out, uh, you're welcome to do that. But uh, right now, we're going to linger for a little while in the presence of the Lord. Uh, find someone nearby. Find someone that it's uh, you're comfortable with. Somebody maybe you do life with. Somebody that you already know about needs in their life. We're gonna we're gonna pray for a little while. We're gonna linger here in the presence of the Lord. Uh, God God's doing a very unique thing here today, and I felt it coming all week in our early prayer. If you don't know about that, we have early prayer every, well, four mornings a week. I felt this coming all week long. I just didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, and it's been a little bit of a surprise to me too. Uh, I didn't know this message was going to go this way. But right now, I want us to linger in this house for a little while. Find someone, take their hand, put a hand on their shoulder. Our pastors are going to move among you. We're going to speak the name of the Lord Jesus over you. Our worship team is going to lead us. Something needs to happen here today. And our... I don't know if you've noticed how so much of our prayer time involves you responding in some way. There's almost always something you have to do. That's not accidental, that's biblical. Because it doesn't matter what anyone else can do, including God, if you're not ready. And God himself says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so it's not just me, pastors, preachers, evangelists all around the world. When we do altars, we're always asking for a response from you. You understand what I'm saying? It's just a small thing to get you past that moment of what you might theologically call a type of confession. I'm confessing. I don't have the answer here. I need Jesus. And so your first step is always repentance and confession. Repentance is the negative side of confession. Do you see? Not the world, repentance, I repent of my sins, 
instead confession, I choose the Lord Jesus Christ. I choose his way. I choose his kingdom. And when you do that, that moment of repentance, confession, it's the same thing. It's, it's two sides of the same thing. It's like the light and the shadow or the shadow and the light. The shadow is, I'm not this world. I repent of that. The light is, I choose Jesus. When you do that in your life, you now begin a journey with God. And you're not done at repentance. What you've done is open the door. Do you see? You've opened the door at repentance. And so whether we call it repentance or confession, it's the, it's the same thing. Not this world, Jesus. I confess I cannot be my own meaning and fulfillment. I choose you, Lord Jesus. You are the judge. I am not the judge. Not this, that. Okay, that is the open door in your life. And God's going to begin to lead you. Everything's going to start from that moment. Do you see? Everything. He's going to lead you to baptism of water. Do you see? He's going to lead you to baptism of spirit. Do you see? He's going to lead you to growing spiritual maturity, your prayer life. The church can help you, but you've got to do it. <laughs> uh, growing spiritual understanding. The church can help you, but you've got to do it. You see what I'm saying? And so I, I want to, uh, one more time, as is the habit of preachers, pastors, evangelists everywhere, I want to make you, I want to ask you to open this door. And here it is. How many of you have a situation from your spiritual past that still harms and hurts your spiritual journey today? Raise your hand all across your house. You still have an experience from your spiritual past that harms you today. All right, raise your hands. This is me, Lord, right here, confessing. I'm going to take it further than that. I still have dreams where I'm trapped. I'm always evangelizing and I'm trapped in someone else's church. Thank God I've got my own church. I'm trapped in someone's church and they are doing something that is horrifying me. I still, that still is a thing. So here we are in the same situation. Do you see, there's something in our past that has power in our present. I'm praying for a spiritual healing right now. It's not that you forget it. Sometimes it's valuable not to forget. I don't mean look back and turn your life back toward that. I'm not talking about your direction. I'm talking about the memory of what God has brought you from. You understand what I'm saying? All of you, there was a surprising number of hands uh, uh, raised here. For some of you, it's church hurt. Uh, for some of you, it is experiences that you survived. You guys know. I'm praying right now for spiritual healing to work this week in our congregation. Would you join with me in praying this prayer? Lord God, uh, this moment of opportunity, spiritually speaking, uh, has been moving among us uh, almost as though your spirit was uh, the wind moving among us. It has brought us to this Sunday, Lord God. And there are those of us here gathered together who are still haunted by things that are in the past. Some people have uh, damage from things they survived. Some of us still wrestle with the accusations people have made against us. They were so unfair and we're still haunted by how willing they were to speak in a harmful way of us, about us, and then pretend like they didn't say those things. Some of us are still trapped in the damage 
And this has a limiting ability upon us. And we feel like we were used. We feel like they had, they didn't care about us at all. They never did. They said they did, they didn't. They were so willing to harm and they even now will deny it. it things we've survived, things that, but this is what I know. Lord, we have to be set free from the deception and the malevolence of our past. And we have to be placed in mercy and grace before you, where you can speak spiritual healing over our life. And let us see your commitment to our future value. You see your commitment to our future value. Then hope begins to rise in our heart and life because God's on our side. We begin to say with the prophets of old, if God is for me, who can be against me? We know the enemies against us. We know the flesh is against us. We know the lusts of our own mind and spirit are against us. But God, you are for us and you speak your blessing over us. You speak your anointing over us. Oh God, let there be real spiritual renewal in our life and in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Now I would like to ask all of you to praise God for His mercy and grace in your life. Oh, mighty Redeemer, we bless you, oh God. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us. Thank you.